On this episode of Ed Scoop's Cutting Edge podcast from Scoop News Group, building a culture around web accessibility in higher education. This is Ed Scoop's Cutting Edge podcast. Every other Tuesday, we dive deep with decision makers on what's next in higher education IT and online learning. I'm your host, Jake Williams. As universities await additional regulation from the federal government on web accessibility, some institutions are taking things into their own hands. This is the second of our three-part series on web accessibility in higher education. Terrell Thompson is the manager of the IT accessibility team at the University of Washington. He tells Ed Scoop's Lindsay McKenzie about his work in IT accessibility and what it means to get others on board. We're all about IT accessibility, so that's all all things um, digital, not just websites, but websites play a large part of that um and as we talk about software and you know third-party products that we purchase many of those these days are cloud applications cloud services or other you know, web-based software applications and so the web um really does play a key role in all of that um and, and accessibility you know obviously we need to make sure that everything we are delivering, all of our programs, services, activities, uh, resources, are they're all accessible, and we're delivering more and more of those um, through the web. And so, um, so that um, that's what it's about generally. Um, I will say it's I don't consider it an outcome. I consider it more of a process that we're. We're actively trying to build a culture of accessibility. So anybody who is involved in some capacity and delivering content over the web, whether that be designers or developers or content authors, or just people, people making purchasing decisions or decisions about their own websites that they own. In all of those contexts, people need to be considering accessibility. Um, and really thinking actively about it. And so a large part of what we do is try to build community. So we, you know, we host, uh, for example, a monthly meetup for uh, web accessibility. So anybody who has an interest in web, web accessibility can get together. And we have kind of this informal group that provides feedback to each other on their website's accessibility in a friendly environment. And just try to, to really sort of build community around this this issue and this topic so that people really are thinking about accessibility as part of their day-to-day, you know, web-related routines. And so that's more than just you know, trying to meet standards, but, you know, just making it a part of the fabric of, of what anybody who does front-end development or design or anything related to the web, you know, accessibility is just sort of baked into the the work that they do on a daily basis. And it's part of that because there are many faculty members or staff members who could be creating content, right? And you can't <laughs> manage all of that and make sure it's all meeting standards. Is that why that education piece is important? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a big part of it. We're, we're a small team, even though we have a larger team at the University of Washington than a lot of institutions do. I know, you know a lot of colleges and universities just have a single person who's responsible for all IT accessibility, and that it's just impossible. And even, you know, with several um, full-time employees, it, it still is impossible when we're talking about hundreds of thousands or millions of, you know, web pages, websites even, and... Yeah, so everybody needs to take ownership of that. And it can't be, I mean, just the the mentality that it's a one and done, you know, it's not a checkbox to say, yeah, we've, okay, we met, you know, WCAG 2.1 level 2A. Um, now we move on to the next thing. Um, it's, 
anytime you're doing you know agile development adding new features adding new content you need to constantly be thinking about the impact that this is going to have on on your users and think broadly about who your users are so so that's the main the main goal and partly it is motivated by having so many you know thousands of authors and you know designers and developers but but also just that even if we just had a few they would still need to own accessibility they need to really be thinking about their users when they're creating content and i think you know the result of that is just better web applications anyway you know applications that are more usable as a result of their being more accessible that makes a lot of sense I wanted to dig into some of the policy environment and the current regulations. And I understand there was recently a letter from the U.S. Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights and the U.S. Department of Justice's Office for Civil Rights, and they hinted that updates are coming. And I'm curious what you thought of that letter, whether it was expected, whether it said what you hoped it would say. Um, I know these changes have been a long time coming. Yeah, it um, it was um, well received. I mean, we've been keeping an eye out, looking for those regulations, um, and still, still are eager, eagerly awaiting those. Um, mostly because of the impact we expect them to have um, on kind of at a high level. Administrators, you know, pay attention to that that sort of thing. Um, I mean, we we have always been focused on functional accessibility and just trying to build that mindset around accessibility like I like I described not so motivated you know by regulations and rules you know we, we like to think it's we're more of a carrot you know as opposed to a stick um, institution but the fact is um, rules do matter and policies matter and and that does help to sort of elevate the conversation and make it a higher priority among um you know executives and so so i think that that is you know an important piece of the puzzle and so we're we are eager to see you know what does come out you know with the the rulemaking process and um the dear colleague letters uh, uh, just kind of gives us a glimpse into the fact that this is in fact moving forward doj and department of education are moving forward together which is also exciting to see um and yeah, just sort of helps to, to reinforce what we already know to be true from from case law, you know, OCR resolutions and, and legal settlements and consent decrees with DOJ. You know, they all sort of have already established that there are ex- expectations around web accessibility um, and even what those expectations are. Currently, WCAG 2.1 level 2A, you know, really has arisen as you know, the, the baseline. And so we know that already, and this just helps to reinforce that, I think. So you mentioned WCAG, W-C-A-G, and 2.1, is that the latest release? I think they're working on a a 3. How does that play into your current work? Is that the standard that you shoot for? Is that a baseline, or is it above where you are currently? Uh, It is, 2.1 is the latest, unless 2.2 has come out. So before 3, 2.2, you know, will um will be released and that has been forthcoming for a while now last i knew it was any day now and we actually do have state policy um state washington state policy 188 
requires that all state agencies meet accessibility standards. And that um, actually has, we have adopted as a state, WCAG 2.1 level 2A. So we do have that, officially have that as our, our baseline. So, but again, you know, um, kind of there, I guess there are two ways of looking at that. One is we don't stop there, that we're looking always at an interface. We're trying to create something with this website, communicate something, provide some sort of feature or functionality with this website or web application. What is that experience like for um, for all users and users with different different characteristics, using different you know devices, different assistive technologies, and so really think outside the box about functional accessibility, um, and that's beyond meeting a set of standards. And so, uh, really, we we try to approach it you know with that sort of mindset. Um, but at the same time, we may have websites and web applications that don't meet WCAG 2.1 level 2A. You know, they fall short in certain areas. But if the the success criteria that they fail on really are insignificant when it comes to the overall functionality of the application. We're not so concerned about that. Um, so it kind of both goes both ways. It is, you know, a, a nice. It's nice to have a standard. It's nice to have, you know, a benchmark that we are striving to comply with. But at the same time, we hope that it's not just about compliance, about you know, checking off those boxes, but true functional accessibility. You mentioned a term, functional accessibility, and I was wondering if you could expand on what that means a little bit. Yeah, when we're reviewing, uh, particularly this comes into play with third-party products, you know, web-based applications um, and so forth. And if we're going to re review those for accessibility, then we'll sit down with the whoever it is at the university who owns that product, and we'll work with them to identify functional workflows. So a person who is using this application is expected to be able to do these things with it. You know, like here's the top 10 functional workflows for, for using this application. Um, and then we explore, can, can a person perform those functions with keyboard alone? Can they perform those functions with a screen reader, uh, with speech input? Um, you know, and so really just looking at those functional um, workflows as opposed to going through a checklist of WCAG success criteria and, you know, using tools to identify whether the application complies with all of those. We may do some of that as well, um, but, but that's, you know, a complement to kind of the main assessment that we're wanting to do, which is can users use this tool for its intended functions. Have you developed your own accessibility procurement framework or is that based on something that the community has developed? Uh, we have our own process within the the, the university's procurement um, system. There, there are terms and conditions that there, there's a threshold above which vendors have to go or people that are shopping for products need to go through procurement services. And if they do that, then the terms terms and conditions come into play. And that includes an IT accessibility rider uh, where the vendor needs to, you know, to agree that they either meet WCAG 2.1 level 2A or are work 
working toward meeting that and can provide you know, some assurances that they're going to be accessible and are going to you know maintain their their accessibility. So that all is built into the kind of the framework for procurement. There's always you know negotiation that happens, and some vendors will push back on that, or they'll redline the IT accessibility rider and you know kind of try to water down what they're agreeing to. And, and then it, there's a negotiation process that often my team gets involved in that, but yeah, you know, there are many others and, and this happens in all spaces, you know, with privacy and security as well. Just a lot of negotiation that happens, but we do have accessibility have for, for a few years now had accessibility built into that uh, procurement process. Do you do in-house testing? Do you have students or staff members who will test products for you? We do. Our, our team does, does in-house testing. Um, so so we have, because we purchased so many products, it, it's kind of a, a, at this point, sort of an informal risk assessment that happens. And so, you know, if a product is going to be really impactful, going to be widely used across campus by all students or, or employees, then that rises to a level where we really need to do uh, extensive testing. And that will involve, um, you know, we've got an employee who's a screen reader user. We've got um, a team of students who get involved. And, and so... We will do a deep dive. And in some cases, collaborations with vendors emerge out of that process where we'll meet, you know, maybe even for years on a regular basis with those vendors and provide, you know, ongoing feedback on you know, accessibility of new features and so forth. And um, so we've had some really, really productive um, collaborations that have come out of that process. For for some of the less high-risk purchases, then, you know, we, we provide training and resources to help uh, decision makers kind of do their own accessibility testing of sorts. And, you know, that may involve just, you know, a VPAT review, a voluntary product accessibility template. So vendors in response to our request for accessibility documentation will often provide that document, a VPAT, that identifies, you know, how well they comply with accessibility standards. And so we are actively trying to educate people on how to read those and, you know, what you can learn from those. Some are much better than others, but usually you can get a sense of how mature the company is on on accessibility. Then we we provide training on how to identify follow up questions. So as you're reading a VPAT, you know what questions do you have about accessibility that you can bring them to the conversation with them. So we're trying to again sort of build community around this and develop a culture where people are a little bit more independent when it comes to evaluating. You know, their own websites or products they're purchasing for accessibility. And then they they reach out to us when things get challenging, but they can do, you know, the basics. Um, you know, so that's I think that's the only way to make it sustainable because there are just so there's so much that gets either created or purchased. And again, we are a small team. So I remember writing stories pre-pandemic about digital courseware and how some of the publishers were not really playing ball in terms of making those accessible or found it really, really challenging. And I was curious if the pandemic and the shift or the focus on remote learning has moved the needle at all in terms of those kinds of publisher online courseware products. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. The, Im- the impact the pandemic has had, um, I, don't, I don't really uh, know. Um, the answer to that, I do feel like accessibility is getting better. That more and more, you know, vendors are are aware of accessibility and are, and are 
taking some steps to address it. I feel like there's a there's more of a market demand for accessibility now where more higher education institutions are asking for it or demanding it. It used to feel like it was just us. I know it wasn't. It, vendors would often tell us it was just us. <laughs> oh, that's the first time anybody's ever told us, you know, ask for accessibility. And I know that's not true, but um, but now, you know, I really feel like vendors are starting to to be awakened a little bit, you know, to the need, to the demand, and and are starting to allocate some resources. It's not true, of course, of all vendors, but you know, but we're seeing a lot more movement in the accessibility space. And you know, if you look at a11yjobs.com, you know, which is a, a central repository for accessibility, digital accessibility related jobs that are available, uh, there are a ton these days um, of companies that are hiring people or looking to hire people that have accessibility expertise. And so I think that really speaks also you know, to the fact that the companies are paying attention. Can I ask you what are some of the bigger challenges that you see moving forward? I mean, websites have always been a challenge, right? Just because there's so many web pages and so many people can create things and put it online and you know, not put the alt text and, and simple steps like that. But, you know, is, is that a continuing challenge or are there other things you're thinking about that you think are particularly difficult to overcome? Yeah, well, I think it, the, the needle moves. We, we actually have, are just wrapping up a research project where 10 years ago, we, uh, we did a project where we were looking to, to try and figure out what the best predictors of web accessibility in higher education in the United States are. And so we evaluated uh, institutions' uh, accessibility, um, just 10 web uh, pages at each institution in the United States. And then we gathered a bunch of other data uh, about those institutions, like do they have an accessibility policy and, you know, what kind of policy is it and so forth. And which of these variables that we have collected have an impact on accessibility was kind of what we're exploring. But in the process of doing that, we did that accessibility evaluation just on five really simple accessibility measures, whether there are headings, uh, the percent of images that, that have alt text, the percent of form fields that have labels, whether there is a lang attribute um, on the, the HTML element, so identifying the language of the page, and is that four or five? <laughs> I think there's, oh, uh, landmark regions, whether they're using ARIA um, landmarks or or now, and this wasn't a thing 10 years ago, but HTML semantic elements you know, to identify different sections of the page. So so we looked at that 10 years ago, and then we're, we're doing a 10-year follow-up of the same study. Um, and we have found that on those measures of accessibility, the results are much better now than they used to be. That we're we're hitting close to 100% of web pages in our sample that have you know, that have headings um, and that have landmark regions identified. Alt text on images is not 100%, but it's much better than it used to be. And um, as are you know, the other variables uh, that we looked at are all much much better than they used to be, but. As we get into web applications being much more complex, um, that isn't necessarily great still. Like we've looked at, we've done other research looking at navigation menus across websites in higher education. Very few of those are coded properly you know, for accessibility. 
So yeah, the more interactive something gets on the web, then the more challenging it is to make it accessible. And so we're always kind of playing catch up. I think there'll be a day probably when all navigation menus are accessible, um, but something new will take, you know, take the place of that, that will present accessibility barriers. So I'd, I'd like to get to the point where innovation and accessibility happen together. So, you know, whenever we're building something, we figure out how we can do this for all users, you know, while we're building it, while we're, while we're innovating, as opposed to accessibility coming after the innovation. And I do feel like the gap between those two is getting smaller and smaller, but we're still not there yet. It feels like accessibility is having to patch things still, you know, more often than it should be. Something you said that reminded me of, I think it was Berkeley or that that famous lawsuit, big argument about captions on videos. And I know that captions now can basically be automatically generated. And I'm, I'm curious if there are tools or, you know, AI powered things that are, are helping you in that accessibility work now that you're using or that you are exploring. Yeah, I think I keep a close eye on that because I, I do believe that we we have millions, maybe even billions of people that influence digital accessibility, either as designers, developers, mostly as content authors, you know, people who create digital documents and then, you know, save a PDF that, that doesn't have all the stuff that it needs to be accessible because they have no idea. And we're never going to educate all of those those people. So if artificial intelligence can step to the plate and can help, same thing with video, you know, captioning video, we're never going to get, there's so much video out there, we're never going to get it all captioned. But if technology can can do at least some of the heavy lift, then that is where we need to, to get to. I would say at this point, it, even automatic captioning, although it gets more accurate all the time, it still isn't there yet. Um, and even... Uh, YouTube, we we have uh, a tool that, that I've developed called YouTube Caption Auditor. Um, it's available on GitHub. It looks at a given YouTube channel and then returns a report on the videos that are captioned within that channel. And we use it for prioritizing captioning efforts. So if you've got a YouTube channel, it's got you know, 200 videos and only half of those are captioned, then you know which ones do you want to focus on getting captioned first? So you can get a bunch of data back from YouTube and then you know sort it in different ways. And maybe you decide based on traffic, I want to caption you know the most frequently visited videos. Um, those would be the highest priority. Or maybe based on publication date uh, or some combination of those things. So anyway, with this tool, the YouTube data API has a single variable captioned, yes or no. And if the video only has its own automated captions, then the answer is no, it is not captioned. So, so YouTube itself does not feel that their automated captions are true captions. You have to go in and manually update those in order for it to count. And I think that's true in general with where we are with artificial intelligence. It can it can do a lot. And the potential is we're only tapping into the, the early stages of what it's capable of. But there's no substitute for understanding accessibility still 
and doing the right thing as you're, you're building things. I wanted to get back to the research you mentioned. Is that something that you plan to publish? Yeah, we are planning to do that late summer or early fall. So we'll, we'll be submitting it to at least one academic journal and then also probably presenting at Accessing Higher Ground, the conference in Colorado that we're, we're active in and you know, go to every year. That's a really good audience for that. Probably Educause also. We may you know, try to get the word out to Educause. Once we're finished with the project right now, we're still doing statistical analysis and trying to figure out what we have learned from all the data that we've gathered. And then on the policy side, I know we kind of steered away from that, but was there anything I didn't ask that you wanted to uh, zoom in on a little bit? Um, I think Um, the stuff you covered is interesting, but just in case I missed it. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, we are again, we are excited about forthcoming regulations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, really really looking forward to just having that um that guidance, you know, that uh I mean, we've got a sense from case law, you know, as to and from the dear colleague letter, you know, what the priorities are. Um but but it would be really helpful. Um to, to get that anchored in some actual regs, you know, perhaps with some timelines, you know, when are we expected to, you know, to do what, you know? And, and I think, you know, again, for the, the purposes of gaining administrative support, you know, to prioritize accessibility, that would be super helpful, you know, to have those in place. Um, so, so we definitely are keeping an eye on that. Um, and I know the Educause IT Accessibility Community Community Group is also um, keeping an eye on that, and you know probably that group will be you know, working with Educause. You know, if we have feedback, you know, to the proposed regs when they come out, then you know that will be something we'll be working collaboratively to to provide. And finally, you mentioned um, you have a bigger team than a lot of institutions might have. And I'm curious if there's any particular resources or advice you might give to someone who's working in, you know, this one man band shop. I really believe even though we have we have a team, the two most impactful things that we have done, anybody can do. And one of those is create a an email distribution list. And, you know, maybe it's not email, maybe it's some other forum, um, a Slack channel or something, but a place for people who do web work at your institution, you know, to come together as a community. So this was something that, you know, 15, 20 years ago or more, maybe it was more. I think it, this was actually before I came to the university. There was this email distribution list um, called Accessible Web for web designers that had an interest and accessibility to just you know compare ideas and to review each other's websites that were in development and that sort of thing provide feedback that was the foundation of what still exists today that meetup group that I, I mentioned and we've got I think over 200 subscribers to that list now so and spans the entire university so that has been really instrumental and super simple to, to set up you know invite a few people who you know are interested and give them a, a space to chat. Uh, the other thing was is similar. We created a an IT accessibility liaisons network that's people out out in the trenches, um, working in academic departments or administrative units who have an interest in accessibility. Give them a space to collaborate as well. Um, that too has an email distribution list. We also get together on on a regular basis, and you know that's the group that we tap into if we have special projects that we want to get people engaged in. And we've got over 150 people 
involved in that that network now. And so in the interest of building community and you know empowering the existing infrastructure, because it's impossible for one person or even a small team to do all of this, the main focus, I think, is really building community and getting other people to address accessibility within the work that they are already doing. Terrell Thompson, manager of the IT accessibility team at the University of Washington. You can read more about him at webaccessibility at edscoop.com and in links in today's show notes. You can also, if you haven't already, listen to our last episode on web accessibility. There's a link to that episode in the show notes as well. Coming up later this year from StateScoop and EdScoop, the 2023 IT Modernization Summit. This year's virtual summit takes place on September 19th. You'll hear from top leaders in higher education as well as state and local government on all things digital transformation. Join Arizona State University Deputy CIO Kimberly Clark and more than a dozen other top leaders from across the community on September 19th for StateScoop and EdScoop's IT Modernization Summit. You can find registration links for the summit in today's show notes and always at edscoop.com. The Cutting Edge Podcast is available at cuttingedgepodcast.com and everywhere you get your podcasts. Tune in next time for our final web accessibility episode of this mini-series. The show is a Scoop News Group production. Carlin Fisher helps make it happen, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Until next time, I'm Jake Williams. Thanks for listening.